very good morning, good afternoon or evening to all of our podcast listeners whenever or wherever you are tuning into today's podcast from. My name's James Dixon and welcome along to the Event Industry News podcast and welcome to today's guest. Ali Wolf is the manager at the iconic Clapham Grand venue in London and joins the podcast today from their centre of operations in the venue. Ali, good morning to you. Good morning, James. How are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. Excited to talk to you, actually. Um, this one sort of dropped uh, or, or was passed virtually across my desk um, uh, about 10 days ago, the opportunity to get you on the podcast and have a chat about what you guys have been up to at the venue over the last 10 months. And it really piqued my interest because um, there's so much that we can and, and, and will attempt to talk about on today's podcast. Um, let's start uh, for people who may not have heard of, of, of the venue before. Um, the Clapham Grand is, you know, it's well over a century um, in operation, 120 years old, I think, something like that. But, yep. you know, correct me on anything like that and tell us a bit about the venue for those who haven't heard of it. It is a listed old Victorian variety hall. So it was built in 1900, uh, founded by one of the biggest variety performers of the era, a guy called Dan Lino. Um, the, I guess you'd be the equivalent of an Eddie Izzard or a Michael McIntyre today, like super, super famous. Um, and it's been run as a variety of different event spaces since, depending on basically the trend of entertainment that was in vogue. So when variety fell out of fashion and cinema came in, it became a cinema. Um, it's been a bingo hall. It's been a dedicated live music venue. It's been a dedicated 70s themed nightclub. It's been a, it, at one point it was a South African themed bar for a couple of years. Um, and I took over running it five years ago. and. My background is kind of like immersive content-led event programming mixed with talent. So creating a, a really like diverse array of events, but the main focus basically being to entertain anyone under the age of, let's say, 40. Um, so I've kind of almost returned it to its variety roots, but with everything that it used to do on alternate days. So we'll flip from being a big bingo event one day to being an immersive movie night. And then the next day we'll have a big live band playing or we'll have a huge DJ or we'll have a theater show. You know, it's a really versatile variety led event space. Mainly I'd say for young people that want to have a really good quality, but slightly silly night out. And, and the, the beauty about these sort of venues, and I've been into, been into lots of them over the years, you know, in various parts of the country as well. You know, I'm I'm not too far from um, from Leeds, you know, and there's some great old theatres and the Leeds City varieties, you know, for anybody that knows that. And these sort of variety venues that were built, you know, a hundred or so years ago, amazingly were designed so brilliantly that that they do lend themselves really well to be a multi-purpose um, entertainment venue. You know, you can have a nightclub, live music venue, comedy, you know, whatever. It, it's, they're so good, aren't they, the way that they were yeah. laid out? That, I think that when that was why I fell in love with it, really, five years ago when I found it, was just, I, you know, no one builds new venues anymore, or very rarely, you know, like the uh, the venue group have obviously built Amira and Lafayette in London, and mm. Ben Lovett's really passionate about building venues like they used to, which is purpose-built to entertain. So the customer and the performer experience is second to none. Mm. Um, obviously a venue that's 120 years old has now got slight, you know, if you could do it again, you would change some things because sure, obviously what's yeah. needed 120 years ago is different, mainly more from the performer side because the tech and the production involved now is that much bigger. Yeah. But from the customer side, the sight lines and the, and the audio it, across all parts of the venue are completely second to none. It, it's, it's unbelievable. And it's because it was built 
for the sole purpose of putting people on stage and people watching. Um, and you just don't get that with modern spaces because they're generally being re, re um, I want to say recommissioned, but that's not the right word, but you know, like repurposed, which obviously yeah. means there's a yeah. pillar, there's a low ceiling, there's yeah. a dead bit of sound somewhere. It, 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 you just don't get that same feeling as when you walk into an old theater, especially a variety theater, because the West End theaters were made for theater shows. Yeah. So obviously it's much more geared towards a full-scale theatre production, but a variety hall was purpose-built for variety entertainment. So it's unique in that it's actually made to do multiple different types of entertainment, whether it's a solo cabaret act or 130 members of a choir. Yeah. It's, it's actually built for that. Um, so, I'm, you know, it's why I'm so passionate about it. And I think it's why, obviously, deep inside of me, I've fought so hard for it over the last year was that it's completely unique and there are so few spaces like it and, and you know you use the word fought so hard for it you know as as was well publicized not just in the in the industry media but in the mainstream media you know venues were and still are at serious risk they've had to endure a torrid time over the last 10 or 11 months with with you know no revenue coming in at all um, and we know that that's also reflective of the wider events industry, you know, freelancers of artists who are working in there. But but when we look at venues specifically, we know what a tough time they've been through. Um, let's go back in time a little bit to sort of, you know, late spring, early summer last year. And we'd had that initial shock of, of the lockdown, you know, the March, April, May time. And as we started to enter summer, we did see an easing of restrictions and we started to hear about some of the first test events going ahead where you know the questions were being asked could we put on live entertainment in a covid compliant way um tell us a little bit about your experience and the venue's involvement with that particular process and how it came about i think it it it, it came about through a realization that this thing wasn't going to go away that Remember, last summer, there was not even a murmur of a successful vaccine. In fact, the talk of vaccines was really two, three years down the road. It, it was a real reality was if we're actually going to be able to get open and trading, it could be that we're doing this for a long time. Therefore, we need to act fast. Mm. Um, it's quite tricky because you're balancing safety and obviously a pandemic and you don't want to appear that you're being risk averse by trying to prioritise commerce. But at the same time, I think there was a shared reality in the public that after two or three months of lockdown, people realised that we have to deal, we have to emotionally deal with this as a as a life threatening pandemic, but also something we're going to have to live with. So I think when it got to a stage where I felt confident that we would be met with support by trying to lead the way to reopen, I worked really closely with Music Venues Trust and the DCMS to put ourselves in a position to be a venue that was chosen for a pilot test event. I'm very grateful that I'm really good friends with Frank Turner from my promoting days 20 years ago when he was a... Uh, Surely uh, not. Surely not 20 years ago, I don't believe. 20 years ago, I'm afraid. Um, and he had done a, a, a virtual stream for me as part of our crowdfunder. So I just approached him straight away and was like, look, we got the opportunity to do a pilot live show. I could think of no one better than you to to front it because he had been on the forefront of saving venues for two months with his... Absolutely. He'd been, a, he'd been in the media a lot. Yeah. 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 Um, so it, 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 it was kind of literally like, let's just do it. And there were a couple of moments in the run up to it. Specifically, I remember the day before when I kind of looked at the, you know, the guidance and the compliance and the amount of work involved and everything. And then the amount of media interest. And I was like, I was like, my God, I just, I was this kid that wanted to throw some parties 20 years ago. And now <laughs> like, there's this big thing, but 
I checked in with all our staff, everyone involved with it. I made sure everyone was on board and comfortable and happy because you've got to realize you're not just representing yourself, you're representing your staff and your customers, but also the wider industry as a whole. So I was very conscious of the whole situation being very much like uh, making a statement on behalf of more than just my own passion for getting the venue open. Yeah. Um, the show was brilliant. It, it, emotionally, it was amazing. The atmosphere, having people in the room, Everyone was responsive to the rules and regulations. We, we, our staff were fantastic. It, it felt like a success. Obviously, the, the, the media coverage afterwards concentrated on the financials, which as, as it probably should. And I was conscious that the Grand is a very forgiving venue in terms of scaling down to a capacity that could still potentially make for a good financial model. You know, sure. 1253 Ford Theatre that can have versatile seating and tables can put 300 people in it distanced and potentially make the margin work. So I was conscious that I couldn't be all out going distance events of the future of the industry because financially that model is unique to me and very few other people. Of course, yeah. So yeah. I was very clear that as a working model for the industry as a whole, it was not the answer and that further support was needed. And I think it's also keen to point out that the Arts Council grants haven't been issued yet. So no one had applied for the emergency grant or the first stage of the recovery grant. So at this stage, it was very much like I felt like if I had said this was a financial model, it could actually have had a direct impact in the media as to people's perception of hospitality, especially gig venues as a whole, because it was a case of whatever I said was going to be big news. And if I'd gone out going, yep, this is good, we can make this work financially, all guns blazing, what would the reaction have been across venues like the Joiners Arms in Southampton, who you know, downscaling 200 people to 20 people for a distance event is, is not even financially or enjoyable. Yeah. But for anyone. So the, the, the press coverage very much focused on the financial debt, on the financials, which ultimately was the right thing for me to put forward. The reality for the venue was it was really successful. And with that, and it gave us the belief that we could implement that same model for comedy, cabaret, movies, um, drag, singer songwriters. So it gave us the blueprint to then book the diary from August till Christmas. Um, which was 80 events of a very stressful nature. <laughs> but going back to the pilot, you know, DCMS were fantastic, issued us the guidelines, were there to help and consult. Music Venues Trust obviously had just been incredible support throughout. Um, it was a combination of working with those two bodies and ourselves and Frank really that pulled it off. Was it, was it difficult trying to balance the connection that you've got with the wider industry and, and, a, and a relationship with undoubtedly many many other venues and what you sort of alluded to there which was a, a selfishness in a way of actually looking out for the interests of the venue yeah the tasked with running that must have been a real difficult balance to strike it was a real challenge if i'm honest and it actually caused me more anxiety it's been the biggest it's been probably the biggest stress for me throughout all of this more so than the financial burden of the venue is the is the finding that balance between doing what's best for your business and the venue, but also making sure you're talking confidently and representing an industry that is not a one size fits all model. Mm -hmm. And also an industry that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not Simon Moran at SJM. I'm not the biggest dog in the world in this, you know, I'm a small fish in a very big pond, but I did also come out of even smaller ponds. And, you know, I, I owe my, 
I owe my career to flyering for independent venues and small gig spaces and being able to get discount on a hire fee when I was 18 to put on a band, you know. And I was just very conscious that all these things were playing in my mind at the same time was thinking, well, I, if I come out really confidently about this, I could actually really set the ground up to, to do really well. But you've got to make a decision of like what's actually, I felt, I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I certainly felt a weight a little bit on my shoulders. Yeah. Um, and I'm conscious of every time I give an interview and every time I talk, like yesterday, I did an interview about my feedback on the budget. And I'm like, well, first of all, why am I talking to the Daily Telegraph about the budget? <laughs> what happened in my life that that yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but also it's like well you know you've got to make sure that what you say is 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 not selfish um and is representing as many people in this industry as possible because mm. one big positive i've taken out of the last nine months has been the feeling of community that's built around a group of people that potentially were not operating as closely together as they are now um that kind of like unison through the NTIA, the Music Venues Trust, the various different WhatsApp groups that I'm sure you're on as well for multiple different people. It has felt very much like everyone has helped each other out during this period. So you are, you've got to be a team player in those situations. I, I felt that. I felt that, that, you know, not just in this industry as well, you know, in, in people that I know who work in other industries, friends and, and family, that there, there has been this sort of collective um, resourcefulness um, among industry. Um, and, and, and we should point out, particularly in the events industry, I think, you know, whether it be suppliers who, you know, in in any other time would be competing uh, vociferously against each other for business, you know, who are now, you know, working collectively to decide how they're going to, you know, save their businesses, ultimately. Um, yeah. The other thing that I, I think from, from venues such as yours, these, these iconic sort of independent, you know, medium-sized venues in comparison to sort of the big arenas and things like that, um, is that with so many small independent venues closing, you know, there is potentially a responsibility on that, that sort of next level venue, that next tier up to actually keep that sort of grassroots um, element going. Um, there, there's, uh, you know, a venue that virtually nobody on this podcast will have heard of close to where I live called the old schoolhouse venue. It had 150 capacity. You know, it was an old school hall that had been converted over the years and was our best and most loved sort of local live music venue where I'm based in South Yorkshire. And they, they closed within four months of, of, of the pandemic striking, you know, and the, 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 the closest place that people have got now to go and play and watch live music is probably Sheffield and Leeds, which, you know, 25 minutes in either direction on the train. That, um, that to me feels, that, that's really, really sad. Um, you know, you should never pick and choose over which venue you should survive or not. But I think the damage done to people that have got less opportunity by a venue like that closing yeah. is worse than damage done to maybe one of three or four similar venues within the same city. Yeah. It's, it kind of that. And that's where I think what the Music Venues Trust have done really well is that, you know, like the press go to the Royal Albert Hall. Do you see what I mean? Like, but who's going after? Who's going after the venue that you've just spoken about? Who's help, yeah. who's because the the people that manage those venues, you know, they don't come from twenty years of networking in the music industry in London or or that kind of like world where it's more about you, where you just are connected and you can be you can feel very alone. I think if you're in charge of somewhere like that or similar, yeah. and I think they've been great at being support to people from all walks of life that run any type of event space. Yeah. And I think the the the, the knock on cultural effect for the opportunity given to local musicians and local performers in the in a venue like that is worse 
hit than if, than if, than if a major city loses, mm. although it's equally sad, loses one of many similar spaces. Yeah. Um, interestingly, um, I, I know that, that not ne- it is a negative thing, obviously, this particular venue, venue closing down, but you know, what was the nail in the coffin for them ultimately was what you mentioned briefly, which is that the protocols that were being set out for distancing and capacities just simply couldn't work for a venue that only had 150 capacity in their main room and 70 in their bar, in their separate bar area. You know, by the time you actually put and implemented the measures in, in, into there, they had an audience capacity of somewhere between 15 and 20, depending yeah. on how they, they looked at it. Just was, was unworkable. That said, the last few weeks have presented, I, I think, a, a more positive outlook for everybody. You know, the roadmap is there set out. You know, we have a target to, to not have any distancing measures in place. As it stands as a venue, what is your roadmap looking like over the next few months in terms of um, being able to start hosting live events again with some distancing in place? And then what are you hoping it will look like sort of post-June based on the government's roadmap? It's a real mixed bag, to be honest. It's a tricky question to answer because I'm fully aware that for the first time in a long time, there's genuine positivity and optimism about everything. And I am embracing that as well because I do feel like the roadmap is a realistic... It's the first time I think we've got a realistic guide with proper notice in advance of when you're meant to be able to do things Mm. and with enough time to pivot and move if things get adjusted so i am actually really happy about what the government have laid out but there is a there is an elephant in the room here that i haven't seen discussed much and that elephant is called the summer now Mm. it's the the problem for a lot of venues is the summer is really tough bands aren't touring generally speaking hard ticketed indoor events are at their weakest in the summer big event spaces without windows or outdoor areas that are very much driven towards late night trade are at their weakest in the summer months. You generally get through it because when you are at your most profitable between between October and May, you are sensible with your cash flow and you are propping yourself up throughout the sure. summer. Yeah. We are all going into a period of trade whereby we, ex- we are expected to reopen at potentially full capacity with, I imagine, certain costs involved that haven't yet been outlined with regards to the implementing of testing and compliance. Without any form of touring circuit for any form of talent apart from potentially drag drag is touring a lot at the moment but live comedians have got edinburgh festival which is probably going to happen um that's my buzzer (laughs) we we, we should point out we discussed this off air before uh, before we hit record today that um ali is is in the venue but is also responsible for manning all of the uh the doors and the buzzers. So we've just had the delivery buzzer um, go. And whilst Ali's um, just just disappeared off uh, away from his desk. For... Oh, he's back. Oh, that, so was quick. that was quicker than I thought. You hit the buzzer. Well, that's the intercom that I buzzed through. This is Tom, who's my assistant in programming here, who's absolute lifesaver okay. because dealing with rescheduling, re-ticketing, the diary and the headache attached to the admin is just colossal. So... We'll say hello to Tom in a minute. And he'll, uh... Shout out to Tom. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't forget in the, um, in the interview. Hello, Tom. How are you? He's, he's, he's just, we can just see Tom hello to James. coming in to, uh, at the back. Good morning, Tom. That's Tom's fleeting appearance on the Event Industry News podcast, everybody. Being a media whore again. Yeah. <laughs> he's in. Um, yeah. The, 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 the 
reopening with distancing, are, are, are you expecting to be able to host some events before, and I'm going to say it, the 21st of June, because I know that that's potentially a, a movable date, but the date in everybody's mind at the moment is the 21st of June, that if we can stick to this roadmap, then potentially that's when it ends. But I'm hoping that you're going to say that something can happen before then with some measures in place. Well, we're, we're going back to the distance model that was in place before Christmas um, from the 17th of May. So there's a window from the 17th of May to the 21st of June where venues can open with indoor entertainment provided we stick to, they haven't been black and white with it yet, but my estimate is it's gonna be the same levels of compliance that applied to um, shows before Christmas. And I've got November, three quarters of December, because we, we traded for a week in December, don't forget. There was that that wonderful week where we got to put events. So I've, we lost November, I lost three quarters of December, January, February, March, April. So across those seven months, there's huge amount of shows that were booked and sold and contracted at distance capacity. Now, a lot of those shows won't want, only want to happen in that short window between the 17th and the 21st. Right. So we are, desperately trying to reschedule and reprogram that real that little window of distanced events and then we're then scheduling events post the 21st of june at a distance capacity but with the capability to scale up based on we're working on the date of monday the 14th of june which is a week before the 21st. yeah because that's when yeah. the government have said at the latest it'll be one week before each stage is implemented where you get the final go-ahead so it's a very strange situation to be in. And if someone said to me a year ago, you'd be in a situation where your entire diary was as movable as it is with as much flexibility on contracts, ticket sales. It, it, it's just like, it's unbelievable how fluid it all is now. Um, it comes with a lot of stress and a lot of like, like, I've never had so many pencils on a diary and so many juggling things around, but I've never had so much willingness to work with me with promoters who, are, who, who accept the situation. Even, isn't it even fabulous agents, even yeah. agents the, the, the between the two things you know like you know usually like you said it's no it's that day or the highway and i'm going somewhere else yeah and, and how, how 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 fluid people have been one thing i must ask and you know a, a bit more of a sort of a sciencey question is um it's it, lateral flow testing when you were sort of starting the initial socially distance events and trialing them last summer was lateral flow testing at that point a thing and if it wasn't, is it going to play a part in the reopening in this window that you talked about? I mean, it's amazing how quickly things change. The idea of being able to get a COVID test within 48 hours and then get a result, a result within a day was a, was a dream last summer. It's yeah. still, but, but, you know, I mean, I remember at Christmas when this mutant strain came out and, and suddenly everyone was having to get COVID tests left, right and center just before we got locked down. Yeah. But even then it was, a, you had to pay a premium price to get a same day turnaround on a test. Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's obviously really new that the acceleration in being able to do lateral flow testing has happened. So it was not in consideration last year. And we are talking to companies about what the initial pricing will be if it is a requirement, but the, you know, another elephant in this, a lot of elephants in the room at the moment, but is the cost of it and who is going to burden that cost? Because, you know, at potentially five pound a test, a thousand people, that's another 5,000 pound on your bottom line. Is that mm -hmm. going to be the venue, the promoter or the customer? How is that? And then the operational processes attached to implementing testing on that scale. Sure, yeah. I, it's, I was... it, it's tricky. 
it it is uh, and we were we were uh, i was speaking to to somebody recently about um about the logistics of doing lateral flow testing um on arrival and it's actually having the area you know a, a, yeah. the, the physical space in which to do it and essentially isolate people within until such time as they've returned a, po a negative test sorry and of course then if yeah. somebody returns a positive test how are you going to deal with that person which then means you've got to plan potentially another space. So whilst the, the lateral flow test, and the reason I ask the question is, it's fabulous that we've come in less than a year from a situation where you had to wait two days, even if you're in hospital to get a test and get a result to the point where yeah. you can get one in 30 minutes. However, the logistics in the event space of actually deploying them is, is difficult, which is why, you know, people, it was suggested that the aviation model may work, you know, where people going to an event get tested of their own accord a couple of days before and bring with them a negative test certificate of some description. You know, I don't know whether or not that would work yeah, in, in this my, context. Um, my Wi-Fi is playing up. I'm just going to move you onto an Ethernet cable. I, I don't think it's going to break the connection, but I'm just... Well, we're, we're going to take a pause there in today's podcast while uh, Ali reconnects and we'll be back with you in a couple of minutes' time. Welcome back to the podcast with our guest today, Ali Wolf from the Clapham Grand Venue. And uh, I'm hoping after that brief interlude to, to, to sort Wi-Fi connections and internet connections that our tech team have done something clever like dropping in a sponsor's message to, to plug that little gap. Um, alternatively, this could have just run straight into the continuing conversation, Ali. Um, good to have you back. We think we're, we think we're just about fixed. Um, I'm, I'm going to quote Joni Mitchell now. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. Yeah, um, I've scribbled it down. Um, we were talking about the cost of things like testing and and um, and who potentially is going to have to, I suppose, burden that 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 cost. Um, do we think that there, there may be a willingness from audiences to actually assist venues? And maybe if there is five pounds extra that they've got to pay to cover some some covid related costs, that there'll be a willingness amongst audiences to do that simply because they're so keen to get back out and, and attend live events i think there will be amongst certain audiences for certain events mm. so for instance a you know if you're a real big fan of a, of a certain act then i'm imagining you'd be prepared to pay the sacrifice of an extra bit of money for your ticket to get into the show yeah. likewise if you're going to see something that's 50 60 pounds a ticket in a really big venue then the extra five pound doesn't feel like as a percentage of what you were paying anyway too big an increase I think where it's going to hit really hard is clubbing because your door price for your standard club, and I'm not talking ministry and fabric with big DJs here. I'm talking your Saturday night, local nightclub, fibers in before 11. Suddenly your night out has doubled in ticket price. Yeah. Um, and also for maybe smaller scale shows like unsigned bands, comedians, mm. even anything, anything below 20 pound a ticket, if you suddenly have to pay an extra fiver to go, you're, I think it's, it's a big dent in your pocket. So I, I think some audiences will be really responsive, mainly for live acts with devout fan bases and larger scale events with bigger ticket prices. But the, the, again, the independents, the smallers, the grassroots will probably be hit hard, I think. Sure. Um, let's, let's move on a little bit, if, if we can, to sort of the summertime. And you've mentioned about that this, that there is going to be a difficulty with indoor venues in, in when we're hopefully going to be out of the current situation and be in a position where social distancing and, and restrictions are, are a thing of the past, all being well. Um, 
let's just park that for a second and um and consider what post that summertime date whenever it may be will look like for audiences will there still be measures in place what measures are you planning to have on an ongoing basis within the venue even once we've passed whatever the date may be for restrictions to be fully lifted i, th I think best practice moving forward for everyone is going to be a higher level of hygiene and cleanliness anyway mm -hmm. it's no bad thing that people have that that's been something we've had to implement uh, I sometimes, you know, when the smoking ban was introduced and now you look back at people smoking indoors and you think, why was that even allowed? You, there's things I look back at yeah. pre-March last year and go, well, actually, yeah, of course, we probably should have hand sanitizer everywhere. And, you know, like common practice, <laughs> I think maybe, yeah. you know. Um, so obviously that, that will be something that's forever ongoing. I think people in general are probably going to feel a little bit more adverse to being crammed in like sardines in spaces certainly above a certain age i think i think this has aged people to, to be honest a, a lot of people i think young 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 people are still going to want to go out and have it obviously mosh pits etc and that's great and they should return but i do think a certain sector demographic maybe is going to come back to this going maybe i actually quite like a seat you know like yeah, yeah. there might be an element of that um, I think yeah. there's been an expectation on better service, better product. I think, generally speaking, it, it, it's no bad thing that we've maybe had to pull our socks up a bit. Obviously, there's a cost implication to that, and it's going to be easier for some people to adopt that model than others. Um, but that's the basics. In regards to other things, I just we haven't been given any guidelines yet, so we don't know about information of testing. We don't know about potential vaccination cards. We don't even know if we're returning to the same distance rulings that we were pre Christmas this year, last year. So there's a lot of unknowns. All, all, all I'm kind of banking on is that we are a very adaptable industry and we are very good at implementing a lot of operational procedures to maximise safety and exit and entrance of customers, basically. Yeah. And I, I think if we can if we can get back to anything like the, the you know, anything close to the capacities that venues were allowed to operate pre pandemic. But when you combine that with a vaccine, uh, an awareness amongst audiences in terms of hygiene and cleanliness and distancing and the willingness of venues to continue to deploy measures relating to hygiene in terms of sanitization stations, you know, um, distancing, you know, when you're coming in and out of a venue, one way systems, you know, an entrance and an exit, which you probably got anyway, because that, that helps, you know, the flow of customers. I think when you combine all those things together, I, I have a really positive outlook on things. I think actually it will make for a better society and a better experience anyway within those venues. No, I, I, I do agree. I think, um, I think it's going to take a while for things to get back to full capacity. It's not going to be, it's not an overnight fix. I would say it could even go along, go on through the autumn to, to into 2022 potentially. Mm. But, you know, overall, I, yeah, I, I do, I do agree with you. I think, I think the customer experience is going to be greater improved as a result of what's happened. Um, it's just what cost that comes at for smaller businesses is the, the fear, I think, you know, we all know ultimately that improving customer experience and product and cleanliness doesn't come for, come free. And we're not exactly in a situation where our customers are suddenly willing to pay more for their tickets. Let's also not forget that. It's like, yeah. 
the, clap, the average Clapham Grand customer is not suddenly £10 a night off, better off. The, you know, the product, the entertainment product is going to be the same. Mm. So it's very hard for customers to acknowledge that what they pay more is benefiting them in anything other than what they're seeing on stage. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Absolutely. So it's hard, to, it's hard for us to compensate for that extra cost in revenue gen, by generating revenue. Yeah, yeah. Um, would you would you mind at all if we if we just touch very briefly on on the staffing side of things because um, we're recording this uh, this podcast on the fourth of March. Um, yesterday was was the budget announcement, and in that uh, the furlough scheme, the government's furlough scheme, um, was extended till September. Um, going back to what you said about the reopening of venues coincided with the summer season. How important was it that they extended it to to September for you specifically? I mean. I'm going to go out on a limb here and go, I was absolutely shocked that they did that. In, uh, you know, it's easier sometimes to criticise a government than it is to compliment a government, especially when the government are conservatives and we work in a slightly more liberal-minded industry. <laughs> Indeed. Um, you know, I'm a... But at the same time, I think if you're going to throw criticism at someone, you should also throw praise at someone if they come through with something that benefits you. And I was incredibly surprised that they did that and it's what i've been i've been interviewed quite a lot over the last two weeks about what needs to happen and i've very much said this is not a silver bullet the 21st of june does not fix our problems the summer will be tough and the fact that they've increased furlough for me you know i don't have a huge network of staff it's going to make things easier for me balancing two or three people mm -hmm. so it's not it, it for, on my level it's great but i can I can imagine how people like the Academy Group or larger networks of venues are feeling, which is they were probably anticipating huge redundancies at the end of April when furlough was meant to end because there is no way on earth the summer is going to generate revenue for people to return all their staff back from full-time salaries. Mm. Um, you know, the three people on my books that it might relate to here is the equivalent to my one venue, as I imagine 300 people are, to... A larger group so I, I mean it's it's an incredibly positive gesture some people are reading negatively into it thinking it's because we're not going to come out of lockdown I don't think it's because of the government's hesitation to stick to the roadmap I think it's generally out of finally some foresight in not leaving things to the last minute to make financial adjustments to support absolutely and, and, and you know let, let's be realistic you know the, the silver bullet date of 21st of, of June if we get to that date successfully um is not overnight just suddenly going to cure everybody's business issues and business problems you know business will not just suddenly recover overnight it will take a long time to recover so there has to be that sort of grace period if you can call it that where you know once people can come back into venues and sh shops and do things that they would quote unquote normally do that there is a recovery period built into there because businesses will slowly need to adapt and let's face it we've got businesses and in the entertainment uh, and the hospitality industry we've got you know a network of you know part-time staff who haven't done their jobs in the best part of a year you know that there's going to be an element of retraining i know it's sort of like riding a bike but you know if you've got bar staff who haven't pulled a pint or served a drink or mixed a cocktail in in nine ten eleven months not knocking on a year they're going to need to get back up to speed aren't they all of those things are going to have to grind back into action I mean, the, the, yeah, I mean, obviously from the bar staff point of view, but if you think about it from the point of view of a production or marketing team, 
have been furloughed for up to what will be over 12 months by the time we come around to May's distance reopening, the seismic shift in technology in that space of time to <laughs> streaming, yeah. um, even digital platforms, and imagine the mechanics of digital advertising, like it's, you know, it, you know, obviously it's like riding a bike, you never forget, but you sure as hell probably need to go slow to begin with. And, you know, the, the industry has changed massively in 12 months. It's, it, it blows my mind that people will have been furloughed for every year by the time we yeah. potentially reopen again. Yeah. And of course, there's the effect as well. You'll see, you know, with, with different uh, acts on every night and different you know types of entertainment each night of the week, you'll see different production crews coming in and out. And of course, those production crews that work day in, day out on tours and, and doing that same job, it becomes muscle memory. It becomes second nature to them. You know, the, 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 they load in and, you know, you'll go for a coffee, check some emails, have a meeting, come back in, you'll go, crikey, they're rigged already and done. These production crews, again, that haven't worked in, you know, or won't have worked in, in over a year, they've got to get back up to speed as well. You know, the, the sort of the loading and the rigging times are going to have to be, you know, extended perhaps a little bit to actually a, a allow them to, to remember what, how they do their jobs. I mean, I think also there's a big thing here, which is going to be that people's attitudes towards their working hours and the stresses that work puts on your home life will change because we've had a period of time where, you know, if, if, you're, if you're working a job that puts you through 10, 12 hour days, three or four days a week solidly, or even for like two or three months in a row, and then you get some downtime, and then you're back on that conveyor belt again. But the conveyor belt never truly stops. The hamster wheel is always turning. Yeah. You never have a moment to check your life. You're just on it. This has given people a huge amount of time to reevaluate how they want to have their lives. And I think it's no bad thing to be in a situation where people are gonna come back and go, well, actually, no. Like 16 hour day followed by 16 hour, you know, like I've got a young family, I've got kids, I've, I'm married, you know, like I think there's going to be a huge amount of personal adjustment to the work-life balance post-COVID that correctly needs looking at because I do think we've all led very unhealthy work-life balances, particularly in this industry because the nature of our industry is 24 hours a day. And I think employers, and I'm going to try to myself, need to be receptive to that and understand that you can't run a business off of goodwill and an insane work rate. You do have to find a decent work-life balance. And I think that will take some adjustment too. And, uh, we're, we're plowing on to the end of today's podcast. But uh, before we wrap things up, Ali, I'm um, just curious to, to, to get a little bit of an insight maybe into the type of communication that's going on between yourself and artists at the moment and their management, their agents, their, their, their promoters. Um as we've already said on a couple of occasions in today's podcast, you know, the dates are there for people to see, but they are a movable feast. Things are getting penciled and then scrubbed out. Um, how difficult is it at the moment for artists and promoters to actually try and get, you know, themselves back working? They want to be back working as soon as possible. But when it comes to planning logistics, travel, transport, crews, hotels, etc., what sort of insight have you got into their world at the moment and what they're doing? I mean, it's it's following a similar path to the to when we reopened in August, which is the independents, the smaller acts, are pivoting faster and are prepared to risk or prepared to put a firm yes, let's do this event. The acts that involve a greater machinery behind them are more hesitant because obviously there's far more many cogs that need to fall into play. Um, so it's very much feeling like my diary to begin with is very much going to be represented a lot by drag, comedy. Um, and 
very independent based events that yeah. don't require six to 12, 12 week run-ups. And then anything that requires bigger is falling into play from the autumn onwards. Um, the, the other interesting thing that's happening is obviously, um, you know, like ev ev it's obviously that everyone is now trying to make up for lost time. You know, like everyone's pocket has been hit by this, whether you're a, a, an agent, a manager, an artist, um, whoever it is, the food chain is being damaged. And um, it's, it's requiring quite a lot of people's skills to be able to work the financial model out for things moving forward, because it's, it's, it's not like it was previously. You've got to like, it's a, it's a slightly different world. Um, and I'm genuinely finding a really good reception to that from everyone that we work with is like, you know, I've got shows that have been in the diary since November last year. You know, they're still, I'm trying to get them in for July and there's agency just, well, don't want those shows to happen anymore. They're like, we, we want to move on. We've got other things. It's like, but we need you to still do those shows because otherwise I've got no content. So it, it's, there's a lot of people skills involved right now, but thankfully I think everyone is very much on the same page. It's just, you know, you've got to work around a few problems. Absolutely. And, and we'd love to, to, to sort of find out how that progresses over the coming months, you know, that, that it, this is not just a conversation to be had now to paint, you know, a small picture. We want to sort of try and keep a, a handle on that bigger picture. So, um, you know, if, if you if you have the time, I know that your diary will be busy over the coming months, but if you have the time, then, um, you know, open invitation, come back on and, and, and talk to us and let, let us know how things are going and what sort of challenges are going to be faced, you know, because I'm sure that landscape changes on a daily and a weekly basis. I'd love to. I mean, you know, thinking about it, I think the, the probably the next position that will be a really interesting awesome. time to talk will probably be around July. I would have thought if yeah. we if we end up doing one of the first tests, pilot tests for full capacity shows, then that's going to be a really interesting thing to talk about. So, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to stay in touch. So the interview has been great, James. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. No, no, it's been, been great to have you on the podcast today, Ali. And we should also point out one thing that we've, we've I think, men mentioned fleetingly is Mighty Hoopla, um, the Mighty Hoopla Festival. And um, again, that's something that, you know, perhaps we can get you back on and we'll talk specifically about that, because that as an event will be facing its own challenges. If people want to find out a bit more uh, uh, about that mightyhoopla.com hoopla with uh, la at the end of it mightyhoopla.com um, to find out a little bit about that festival that um ali uh, is, is is very heavily heavily involved in yeah. um and for those of you want to want to find out a little bit more about what we've been speaking about today which is the clapham grand venue claphamgrand.com is the website to go to and um i should should say that it, it's been set out wonderfully clear as a, as a venue website there's there's covid safety and seating as a specific page and um if you want to go and see how a venue is is communicating with its audience go to their website and have a little look at what uh, sort of information is up there and how they're doing things I presume, Ali, that if they want to track you down on social media, it's all the same sort of stuff. Clapham Grand and related. Uh, yeah, at the Grand Clapham is our social media tags, and I'm at Ali Wolf. Fantastic. Um, been brilliant to have you on the uh, on the podcast today. Um, very few people, I'm sure, will be watching the video of this because, as I've said many times before, nobody wants to tune in and see my face on a video. So um, you'll likely listen to this uh, as the audio version. You can go in both directions. If you're listening to the audio, head over to eventindustrynews.com to watch videos of all the podcasts. But more importantly, check out some of the latest news, features and supplements that are getting published by Event Industry News. And if you're watching the video and you're on that website already, then get 
your phone out or your iPad or whatever you use, go to your favourite podcast platform and you can listen to all of the previous episodes of the Event Industry News podcast. I think we're up to about 225 or 6 or something like that. It's in the 220s anyway. Um, it's been great to have Ali Ross from the Clapham Grand on the podcast today. My name's James Dixon. We're signing off and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye. Thank you.